Welcome back, everyone, to Frenchpreneur. Pumped to have Nick Beek on the show today. I've had the privilege of meeting Nick, being in his office, seeing his business a little bit. And he strikes me as a very customer-focused fintech entrepreneur. And I'm sure we're going to learn a lot today uh, through this conversation. So thanks a lot for coming on, Nick. So let's let's just start with a bit of general background on yourself. Feel free to take us back as far as you'd like so we get to understand who you are and how you came to be. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me, David. Going all the way back from myself, I mean, I was born in Texas, but moved to Montreal when I was one years old. So French is my first language. And then moved to Calgary when I was 12. So I like to say I'm a Texas French Canadian. And at this point, I speak none of the languages properly. So that's that's the very, very far back. But in terms of business, so I started my company, Helsum, well over a decade ago. But there's kind of like a Helsum 1.0 and a Helsum 2.0. There's like, let's call it a very hard pivot. And essentially, we started off as a reseller of merchant services. So uh, we built a, a... It was a small business. It wasn't a, a fast-scaling kind of startup. But we built a reputation as having really focusing on small businesses, transparent pricing, not playing games in an industry that's pretty notorious for it, and slowly built that business over time, but always wanted more, always wanted, you know, felt that we could, we could really make a dent and offer SMB something a bit different and did a very hard pivot, took multiple years behind the scenes of us becoming our own payments company. And so this is us allowing small businesses to accept credit cards, bank payments. You know, we compete head on with the Moneris's of the world and the, the squares of the world. And it took many years to do that hard pivot where we really could control that experience A to Z. So we, we relaunched Helsum 2.0, if you will, in June of 2020. And it's been a pretty wild ride ever since. So that's pretty much us in a nutshell. Nick, those who are new to the payment space, I think it'd be of value to kind of get into just kind of how that industry works and what it means to be a reseller and what it means to actually be a payments company, or I believe it's called a payback. So yeah, maybe just dive into that a little bit. Obviously it took a few years, so it's obviously not something that simple. What's interesting about the payments, like say, let's say card payments. So that's credit card payments, which is really like the bulk of how a lot of consumers obviously pay. And it's becoming quite prevalent in the B2B payment space. What's interesting, if you go all the way back, you have kind of Visa MasterCard, which actually started off as not-for-profit kind of associations of a bunch of banks. A bunch of banks got together and said, we need a network that where we can kind of issue credit to consumers and be able to transact between each other. Visa was born and then other banks were like, well, we need something to compete with that. And then MasterCard was born and you add American Express and so on. And, and those companies actually about a decade ago flipped to become for-profit publicly traded companies and they're you know, wildly, wildly successful. But it's re- still the way that the network works, it's still just a bunch of banks connected together. So Visa and MasterCard are really kind of like big, giant clearing houses. And even if you think about the credit card that you have in your wallet, you don't go to Visa for that credit card. You go to TD or whoever that's going give to you, give you that credit card. And even the, it, they're almost more like franchises because even the points that you have, you know, the banks aren't that creative. So they don't really come out with their own points program. Visa MasterCard now would kind of create some ideas for them, some templates. And, hey, this is, this is a good card for students. And this is a good card for professionals. And this is you know how much you should charge and how many points you should give, right? And the banks go, okay, thank you very much. And today, there's over 100,000 banks in the world that issue these cards. Like if you think about the, you know, I'm a little bit biased here. And those networks are certainly not without their flaws. But if you think about the magic that is what 
those two companies, you know, no, 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 you have the American Express and others on the sides, but really what Visa MasterCard have built, like you can fly to Dubai tomorrow with this little piece of plastic in your pocket and just authorize payments in real time across hundreds of thousands of banks. I mean, it's pretty wild. We take that for granted. Eh? We do. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it happens lightning fast and it, it happens pretty much without bumps. I mean, I think Visa had an outage a few years back in Europe that lasted almost a day. And they got dragged in front of European Parliament in Brussels and everything, essentially like to really got dragged through the mud. And that's when you know your company is important. <laughs> when if you have an outage for a few hours and it becomes like a political storm for a huge amount of time, right? So, and to go in terms of like how processors fit into that, it's actually banks on the other side. So just like you don't go to Visa to get your credit card, you don't go to Visa to accept payments. You go to a processor that's connected to those networks that can actually facilitate the money. And every single processor has to have a bank in the background. That's what's interesting is that the net, we can't access the network without being connected through a bank. So even the big ones like PayPal is all done through, or the bulk of it's done through like Wells Fargo. And Square is done through Chase. And even us, Helsum, when we became our own payments company, we have a partnership with a few banks, including a U.S. bank out of the States. So everybody is kind of connected to a bank in a way. You can't escape it. But it's just how much control each of those processors have. And we were a reseller for a long time. We were just really reselling somebody else's services. But one day, after all, you know, a lot of effort, we became our own processor. We control onboarding. We control how money flows out. We control the fees and the software and you know, the whole thing. But ultimately, we're still going through a bank to access the card networks. That's just how the system is set up. So by becoming your own payments company, you can control that entire experience. I'm guessing that was really the, the impetus to go in that direction. The way we look at it is we're entirely focused on SMB. So our mission is to be the world's most loved payments company. And we really like that mission. We think that payments is... I mean, the thing with payments is that it's it's not vitamins. It's a painkiller. Like you, you just got to be able to accept payments. And we think that SMBs are the lifeblood of our economy. The majority of jobs, the majority of, of volume is really happens through the SMB market. But there's still this, to this day, I mean, payments is still a bit of a, a not so friendly industry for small businesses, right? They, they keep getting dragged through the mud. There's contracts, there's high fees, you know, it's confusing. And we thought we're going to have to be our own payments company to really solve that and put our SMBs at the very forefront of it so that we can give them affordable pricing, we can give great customer service, and then we can give them a bunch of built-in software for them to really kind of digitize their business. And that's what became Helsum today. And so when you first became your own payment processing company, was it through a single channel? Was it simply in-store? Because I know today you do online, you do invoicing and others, but was that gradual or were you able to offer that right off the beginning? No, we were we were kind of idiots in our <laughs> approach. We just went for the whole shebang. When we launched as a payments company, you have to keep in mind this Helsum has, has grown a ton, but we were just about, we were 40 people in Calgary. And when we launched as our own payments company, we started servicing both Canadian and US businesses and for in-person payments. So that's kind of when you think about those, those terminals, and those card readers at the front desk. And you know, we do online, we do invoicing, we do recurring, and we launched it all at once. <laughs> it was it was quite hairy at first. You know, I think on the outside, people are like, oh, this is pretty good. And it got traction pretty quick. But on the inside, it was just like running around with our hair on fire. We bit off way more than we could shoot. And we were just 
trying to keep it all together. We really had no business trying to be a full-fledged payments company in two countries across multiple channels with like a bootstrap team of 40 people. But I think that's part of the, the joys and the madness of entrepreneurship is that like hindsight, you're like, why did we do this to ourselves? But you know, in the moment, you're never going to take those risks and those leaps of faith if you really know what it's going to be like, right? So, uh, How big is your team now, Nick? We have almost 150 people in Calgary. So it's grown quite a bit in the past couple of years. Wow. And to become your own payments company, was that mostly like a regulatory exercise? What were the main challenges with that? There's a lot to it. We decided that in order for us to do it right, we really wanted to build a lot of things ourselves. So there's a huge... People see when they look at our website and they'll see, okay, you'll see card readers and you'll see invoicing software and so on, right? That's kind of like the tip of the iceberg, our merchant platform, the tools that our merchants use to, to accept payments around their business. There's underneath the water, there's the real iceberg. And that is the fraud systems, the settlement systems, the fee reconciliation systems, like the transactions and key management's encryption. I mean, the list goes on and on. And it took us over three years to kind of build the first iteration of those because we wanted, we're like, in order for us to really create the A to Z experience and be able to offer the rates that we thought small businesses deserve, we couldn't have all these middlemen in our service. Like we really had to, to try to build that ourselves. So it took quite a bit. And then in terms of the, the regulatory security and c- compliance side, convincing a bank to give you those keys, it took 10 years of relationship building <laughs> I mean, really for them to be comfortable. And even then, when we got the quote unquote, yes, it took another three years for them to get comfortable with what we were actually asking for. You know, they'd be like, okay, well, you'll have this license, you'll be able to do what you want to do, but we'll still be doing, you know, shadow underwriting in the back, or we'll still be taking care of this compliance or this regulatory filing or so on. We're like, no, no, no. Like you can spot check us as per arrangement to make sure that we are in compliance, but we can't have you in our business. We need to be able to do this ourselves. Yeah, it was a pretty monstrous undertaking. Was it the same in Canada as it was in the US or was the US a completely different beast or how was that experience? It's interesting because ultimately like our primary partner, banking partner that who we access to be able to do this is an American bank. And Helsum is a proudly Canadian company. Two thirds of our business is, is actually nowadays from SMBs or actually SMBs in the US. So we're very much you know, across both borders. But we tried originally to build this through Canadian banks and we could not. Like there is that kind of monopolistic, if you think about say a, a Moneris, Moneris is an interesting story. It's the love child of a bank merger that never happened. So BMO and RBC tried to merge in the year 2000 and it never came to fruition. But in that process, they actually created Moneris. They own it 50-50, but the merger never happened, but the love child <laughs> was born. But if you think about a lot of Canadian banks kind of either have very deep relationships with existing providers or have their own processing, and they have no interest in letting anybody else in the door. I mean, you're seeing that with what's happening with open banking, with yeah. you know, all those initiatives. They're just pumping the brakes as much as possible. And ultimately, I think that that's something that's a little bit different about the way that Canadians versus Americans do business is that Americans are, are certainly more risk forward, but they're also more open to... I don't want to say frenemies, that's the wrong term, but just being willing to like the bank that we do business with, they have their own processing division, yet they're still willing to create this framework and have us join, right? And I don't think a Canadian bank would do that. So it's it's been interesting in that way. Because of the, the way that it's so spread out and decentralized in the US in terms of having 
hundreds of banks, you know, regional mm-hmm. banks, uh, bigger banks, smaller banks, stores here, it's it's so concentrated in, in the top five that the influence that they've got is, is much more than the U.S. So I feel like although the U.S. itself, it's not all butterflies and roses, I, you know, trying to get into the U.S. is a complex thing, yeah. you know, state by state and, and all that. So there are definitely some issues when it comes to that. But in terms of the willingness to do business, you're 100% correct on that. And I think you're right. If you get a no in Canada, you're like, okay, I'm down to, I got three more chances, right? If you get a no in the US, you're like, I've got hundreds of thousands of more you know, organizations I can talk to. And that's very different. And actually, that kind of carries to, I think, the investor market, where I think that's where Canadian startups can struggle sometimes. Is if you get a, say you're trying to do um, fundraising and you're in your seed round, if you get a no from somebody in your ecosystem, you're like, oh, I don't have that many other people to talk to. Versus in the and the, the states are so big that there's always somebody that's going to be able to align with what you're trying to build. Nick, let's talk about fees for a moment. You mentioned that you want you know the mission is to be the most loved payments company, and how one of the problems in the space is confusion and the contracts and complexity and so on. Talk to us about how you've approached that, and also I'm curious about this federal budget that was released just a little over a week ago. I know that payment processing was pretty central in a part of it. I saw the headline, but I really didn't read below that. So I'm, I'm actually just curious what that really even is. So yeah, let us know. Payment processing fees are certainly a point of contentious with small businesses, right? Nobody likes paying the high processing fees. It's a, you know, it causes heartburns. We're really, we're really aware of that. So our mission really is, what is the best way? Obviously, credit cards have been a huge value to businesses. They need to accept them. But then how do we help our merchants navigate that? so that they can get the access to the lowest rates. So what we did, and we pride ourselves, really one of the first processors to do this in the SMB space, is we brought a pricing method called Interchange Plus Pricing. And just a quick crash course on Interchange is really, those are the fees that are actually set by Visa MasterCard. So like everybody has access to the same ones. They're kind of like the wholesale rates, right? So if you have a Visa Infinite card with tons of reward points, like that card is at 1.8%, let's say, right? So and those fees actually go back to the issuing bank. So that's the bank that actually gave out the credit card. And what they do with that is they take some of that for their revenue and they take some of that to actually give out the points, right? So what we decided to do is there's a pricing method that was less well-known called interchange plus or cost plus. So essentially like you give the wholesale rates and then we'll show, so which is super transparent because you just say, okay, here's exactly what the rates are. That's the wholesale, like that's it. And then we'll have a small margin on top that you know exactly what it is. So then it's like, you know our cost, you know our margin. And then we even have decided to do automatic volume discounts. So like the more we process, the more our margin gets compressed. You don't even have to call in to like negotiate, right? So we really were one of the first to brought to bring this to the SMB market. Now there's a downside, which is it's more complicated. So versus like, if you think about a, a Stripe or a, a PayPal or a, a Square, I'd say 2.9%, like that's kind of like flat rate. Like that's easy to understand. It's high, it's not ideal. You could be saving a lot more with going with Brothster like like Helsum, but it's simple, right? And for us, our philosophy, I think there's a mindset of like simple is better, but I actually think that small businesses are actually more clever than people give them credit for. And ultimately, they can do some basic math and their bookkeepers certainly will and go, you know what? Okay, cost plus pricing is a little bit more complicated because there's some it's kind of like a variable mortgage rate as opposed to kind of like a fixed one, right? There's a little bit more complexity to it, but ultimately it's actually going to save you a lot. And we decided let's bring this to the market to SMBs. They're smart enough to get it. And like, it's been a big part of our success. Now, going back to your question regarding the government announcements, 
So the Kenyan government's been pretty effective at trying to put pressure on Visa MasterCard to lower this interchange. They kind of come out of the woodwork every five years and they kind of rattle their saber and go, okay, you need to bring this to a better place. And they just announced that they're putting that pressure again. What Visa MasterCard are going to do is that they'll comply and they'll probably, I don't know the numbers, but it'll, they'll probably reduce it by, my guess is 10 to 40 basis points. They'll kind of make some changes, right? Where that money comes out of is it's ultimately coming out not of Visa MasterCard pocket. It actually really comes out of the banks. So like the BMOs of the world, the TDs of the world with all these credit cards. And then what those banks can do in return is reduce some of those rewards. So it's a bit of an interesting game because you have you have like over a million SMBs in the Kenyan market going, please, government, put some pressure on Visa MasterCard. But then you have 35 million Canadians that really like the rewards going, you know what, we're good. Right. So they kind of have to do this balance where they can't gut them because you have the entire population going, we really like traveling and these points are really great. But then they can't ignore them because you have these really important SMBs going like, hey, we don't want these to keep going up. Right. Now, I'll add one more thing to it. What happens most of the time with flat rate providers, some of the ones I named, right, is that when that wholesale cost goes down, when that interchange goes down, they just pocket it. Like when is the last time you saw some going like, hey, like that 2.9% that's been somehow stuck in people's minds since PayPal created that pricing like 25 years ago. When is the last time you saw that go down? I mean, in most cases, it's actually going up, right? So when the government puts that pressure, all those processors do is they just pocket the difference and then they don't pass it on to the SMBs where it's supposed to go versus with us, because we do kind of cost plus pricing, when that cost goes down, our merchants immediately benefit the next day from it. That's my plug. That's really interesting. So that government regulation, all it really does is it certainly helps small businesses. Well, actually, it doesn't even. They're if they're with Helsum. And I mean, I'm biased. Yeah. I'm biased. They're cost plus. So it helps certain, a small portion of small businesses that happen to be on cost plus. So exactly. those ones get to benefit. And then the consumers basically lose because their points just go down. And it's everything a delicate balance. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. It happens a lot with some well-intended government regulations. You know, there's some collateral damage often, right? They, you know, we've chatted about this one as well when they're doing the the maximum cap rate or whatever. You're much more familiar than that than I am, but I don't know if you wanted to chat a little bit about that one that we had discussed a little bit. With, oh yeah, uh, they're they're, just, they're lowering they're lowering the max rate that lenders can charge, which sounds really friendly towards borrowers, but all it really does is make a lot of borrowers ineligible for credit. Because I, I know how lending businesses are run and it's very simple. Well, it's actually not, not that simple, but you know, when you when you model loss rates and stuff, uh, just a direct correlation with how much risk you're willing to take for a given price for that credit. And if you just lower the max that can be charged, you're just going to reject a lot more applicants. That's, yeah, that's, that's always awesome. the case when you have multiple parties as part of that different interests. And you know, if it's triangular and so on, like something's going to shift offsides, right? So it doesn't mean it, that it shouldn't be happening. It's just It's just tricky. Yeah. You know, the headline is always oversimplifying the real dynamics that are at play. I was going to ask about fundraising because, you know, you went from Helsum 1.0, uh, which is kind of bootstrapped, didn't require capital. Helsum 2.0, bigger plan, a lot more people, you know, required more capital investment. You talked about how there's a lot more venture capitalists down in the States. Talk about your fundraising journey. How did that play out? When did you realize you needed to raise money and, and how did you go about it? Yeah, so it's Helsum 2.0, really. Like, and we were growing quite aggressively. And it was our CFO, Marjorie, who's I think you had a chance to meet. She's fantastic. And she came into my office one day 
it was about a year and a bit ago. And she said, essentially like this bootstrapping is done. <laughs> like Nick, it's like no more. And uh, it was like that was only a year and a half ago. Yeah. That's yeah. The fall of 2021. So how long is okay. that? Yeah. And essentially I was like, okay, I'm listening. And she clearly said this business growing way faster. Than we can keep up with, we need to hire a ton of people keeping up with, with a payments business. is like, we need a big foundation. So we're going to have to get some deeper pockets. And we had never, we were in a little bit of a, a weird position because most of the time VC backed businesses, they kind of start in a certain process, right? It's kind of, you get your, your angels, you get your pre-seed, you get your seed. And if you can make it, then you can become a series A and so on. Right. And, but what that does along the way is it kind of builds a network of people and investors that are willing to kind of keep opening doors. And for us, we just had never done it. So we reached out to a bunch of great friends and entrepreneurs and just said like, how the hell do you raise capital? and kind of went on that journey. And it's always shiny on the outside. On the inside, it was just like operations, chaotic. And you're trying to, how the hell do I put a pitch deck together? And what's a data room? And But finally, we, get, we went through that. And I think the what we had to do with a market is when you're switching from... On one side, there's a lot of appeals to having run a bootstrap company because you become really capital efficient. You know your unit economics. You know how to efficiently run a business. And if you were in a business that the bottle didn't work, it would have collapsed already because you had to make it work, right? So that's the, the pros. But on the other side, running a, a venture-backed business is quite different. The level of aggression, like once you're on that treadmill with those types of investors, and I don't mean that negatively, it's just a model, you need to return you know, two, 300% growth every year. That's how their model works, right? And we went into that our eyes open going like, if we're going that way, and I mean, we were lucky our business was starting to grow at that rate. So it started yeah. making sense. But we had to convince the market that, hey, we are a VC backable business. Like we are no longer the bootstrap company that we were. And like, this is going to be a hell of a ride and we want you to come on board. So we went through that. We announced our Series A in March of 2022. So just a year ago. And uh, now we're really starting to look at like, what's the next letter that comes and and you know we've had a ton of growth. So but it's a very different, I think that when you're, there's a certain privilege to being a bootstrap company because you really don't, you answer to your customers, you answer to your team, but ultimately you really don't, you answer to yourself versus all of a sudden I found myself going, okay, I've got a board now and I've got various investors and I've got my interests and I've got their interests and I've got the interests of my customers and my team and everything. And it's like, there's a whole lot more dynamics in that. We're really lucky that ultimately we found two really great investors. We're really scared that, you know, you hear the horror stories of VCs coming in and really changing the culture of a company and forcing them to make short-term decisions that aren't necessarily in the interest of the long-term. We really worked hard to try to find investors that were aligned with us. You know, we wanted somebody to come in and be like, we really like who you are. Here's somebody to be more of you. And obviously there's there's some guidance and advice that comes with that. But, and ultimately, we, we found those. We're really lucky. We've they've been on board for a year, and it's been a fantastic year. So there's two partners. One is out of Toronto, a firm called Information Venture Partners. And everybody told us, you know, really solid the earth, long-term thinkers. These are the people you want in your corner. And then um, we were introduced shortly after to a firm called Aqualine out of New York. And similar feedback from the market. So we're really lucky that we found great ones because there are some horror stories out there too. But fortunately, that hasn't been our case. Got it. So those two were like your like two co-leads? Exactly. Did you, have, did you have another number of groups that went in as well, or, or, or was that the bulk of it? 
Yeah, I mean, the big bulk was those two co-lead investors. And then uh, we proactively went to a group in Alberta, so Calgary-based Alberta, and, and uh, called Alberta Accelerate. We said, we want to actually, look, we've got two co-lead investors. It's going really well. We're about to close this round. We'd love for you to come on board because we are confident that we're going to be a big success. And ultimately, we want some of that capital to come from Alberta so that it can continue that cycle of building that ecosystem. Cool. So they came on board as well. And yeah, it's been a pretty fun, fun year. That's awesome. And so are you gearing up to, to do more of that or uh, not for a bit? No, we're, we're, I mean, we're fortunate. We have a pretty good runway. We're in a position where we can kind of be more choosy. But we're at the point now where a next, you know, the, the pace at which we're growing and the ambition that we have, what we want to do in the SMB space, for us, our vision really starts with payments, but then it kind of layers on top of that. We're at the point now where we're starting to kind of really flirt with the idea that this might be the right time. We're also seeing the capital markets start defrosting a bit. I mean, nobody was writing checks for a year. So no matter no matter how great you look, you start going like, am I money has a cost? I mean, you very much know that <laughs> from merchant growth, right? So capital is just, you know, what is your price of debt? What is your price of selling equity? What is your, you know, and and selling equity, I think for a period of time, a lot of founders that were in that privileged position going like, mm, I don't know if I'm that price is worth it, but I think it's starting to defrost. So we're starting to open up to that. Awesome. Hey, uh, Nick, if you don't mind, I want to take the conversation towards just comparing different types of payment processing in you know, B2C versus B2B. Your thoughts on that? And, you know, is there any major differences for you guys? My understanding is you're sort of a B2B to C companies that are, you know, your clients are businesses, but their clients are consumers. Is that correct? Or do you also facilitate some B2B sales? We do a bit of both, actually. So the way that we look at it is we really focus on what we like to call traditional SMBs. So everything like we we have, we service anything like we were a horizontal processor. So like name something like an embassy, a movie theater, a tire manufacturer, like well, <laughs> who day we have them as a client, but we do have concentrations. So we really focus on healthcare providers. So, you know, think of a dentist, a veterinarian, a optometrist, professional services, accounts, lawyers, and a lot of wholesale B2B. So there's this term that I like to use, say like unsexy businesses are the best businesses. So, you know, not Agreed. that, you know, the world needs coffee shops and t-shirt stores, but ultimately like the, where a lot of that, the SMBs are is like a wallpaper wholesaler out of Ohio. Like, I mean, that's that unassuming neighbor that's making $2 million a year, right? Like there's all these like super interesting or like a, a wholesaler of plumbing parts, like just, they're like super interesting businesses to me, maybe not to everyone. And ultimately, more and more of those payments are going on on credit cards and and kind of EFT and ACH bank transactions, and that's where we really shine, right? So, so I think some of it will be on the consumer, like you said, like B two B to C, but we also do quite a bit of like B two B to B, just because I think paying by credit card has really become it was more niche in the B two B space for a while, but nowadays, I mean, even think about a restaurant. Let's say a restaurant will have B two B to C, right? Because like it's a business and it's selling to consumers that are having a nice lunch, but a lot of their purchases, even like their bread, their fish, or whatever they're, they're taking off to their menu, a lot of those purchases are now being done on credit cards too, right? So we really love the idea of being kind of multiple steps into the, the chain that is this wonderful, crazy world of businesses out there that make it all run. That's awesome. Nick, when, when you hosted our team at your office uh, and we got to see a little bit of your platform and just how you guys operate, it struck me that you know, a very product focused company. You have a lot of people working in product and technology. You obviously have a really ambitious roadmap. You're building lots of features. Talk to us about 
like the the ones I guess that you're most excited about that you'd like people to know about that are maybe quite unique in the payment space? Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, we've got two things that are coming out in the next couple of months. They're not huge secrets. We're not that like Apple secretly reveal the thing underneath the <laughs> the sheet, right? So our merchants know they're coming. I'm not I'm not uh, breaking any surprises. But we've got our smart terminal. We're super excited about that. So. That's a standalone terminal with a beautiful screen that they can put on a counter front. Uh, merchants have been asking for that. And it's all cloud connected, right? So what's neat about our system is that say you're an accountant and you've got a unit with us at the front desk, right? So it's tax season, somebody comes to pay, they tap a card. You know, that's pretty standard, right? The banks kind of can offer similar services. But with us, that credit card and that customer automatically appears in their platform. And then all of a sudden, we can train that, that account to be, hey, next time you need to do your billing, don't worry about asking the customer to come back with their card or anything like that. Just click on the customer, click on that wall, click on that card and just add it to an invoice. And that's kind of like that beauty of our system we're really proud of. And the smart terminal, we're really excited that that's going to be the next layer of that. And then the, the second thing, and that one's, it's funny, it's a little controversial in the world of payments, but ultimately we know our, our small business customers really want it. And that's credit card surcharging. So it's been made legal in Canada as of October last year. And that's when businesses choose to pass on their fees to the consumer. It's actually been legal in the, in the US for a few years now, and it's grown a lot in popularity. And it's a little controversial because consumers really don't like it. I don't like it as a consumer. Like it's not, if I walk into and I want to buy myself a, a sandwich or a donair at lunch, like I don't like it when there's this extra little fee just for the convenience of tapping my card, right? But on the other hand, you have businesses like say you're you're getting solar panels for your house and you know it's it's, not, it's a pretty big ticket item that you and your partner decided to take on and there is a convenience to paying by your credit card and but then you see that supplier going hey if you pay my credit card instead of a check like you know can I pass on the three percent right and a lot of people are saying yeah no yeah sure, that's fine like I still want the convenience to be able to finance it through my card and so on so for those businesses that's really where our first generation of features is going to go out to. And it's going to give them a chance to automatically do that with their entire system. And the way that we're going to be releasing it is it's going to give an option for an off-ramp for the customer saying, you can pay by card, it's going to be an extra 3%, or you can pay by bank account and it'll be free, right? So, and that's always you know part of to be the world's most loved payments company is like, how can we give the tools to SMBs to ultimately make it easy for them while still creating pretty good experiences for their their consumers. So those are the two things I'm like super excited about. They're coming out in the next couple of months. Yeah. I mean, I can geek out about payments all day. Hopefully your, your listeners haven't like clocked out yet, but yeah, I, I love the world of payments. I think it's fascinating. Yeah, I, I agree. And you know, it's a huge part of the fintech space, right? So I think it's super on, on topic. Nick, there's lots of companies obviously in the payment space from one perspective, you know, accepting a payment that, that sounds somewhat straightforward and like somewhat similar from company to company, but there's obviously big differences between these businesses and they're pretty complex businesses. So talk to me about Helsim and how it kind of differs from others in the space. Yeah, you know, what's interesting about payments is that, yeah, I mean, on the surface, you're thinking it's it's pretty commoditized, it's payments. And when we talk to new investors, for example, like a common question we get is like, oh, well, you know, Stripe and Square are we in the space, right? And one thing we quickly say is like, Square only has less than 2% of the market. And that gives you a sense of how freaking big this market is, right? I mean, we're the $80 billion market cap company, right? So it, people just realize like, oh, okay, like it's kind of like the insurance space. Like there's not one, one insurance provider that owns the space. And then in a payment space, there's not one company that owns it. It's just, it's too big. It's absolutely enormous, kind of like banking, right? So 
you really have to go like, where do you want to put your focus? So for us, for example, like let's say like a Halston versus a Stripe, right? Stripe is really focused on the kind of traditional business we talk about. That's really not Stripe's business. Like your auto mechanic or your your accountant or your dentist is just not with Stripe, right? Stripe is really focused on powering other platforms and other marketplaces. Like what Stripe is looking for all day is another Shopify. Like they built their business together. They are still the ones powering Shopify's payments, which is now you know over 60 plus percent of Shopify's revenue, right? And you know, they power businesses like Jobber and I think Etsy and you know other ones like that, right? And that's what Stripe is looking for. And you're kind of seeing that in their behavior. Like if I'm obviously hugely biased, but you're not going to get the same access to Stripe as you used to, right? When you call and they're like, hey, I'm a small business, I'm doing this. They, they don't care. <laughs> you know, you're not the next Shopify, right? It's been an interesting education process when we're talking to new investors to really make them realize that for Helsum, we are 100% into traditional SMBs. So yes, we'll have kind of what we call a baseline of developer tools. We'll have you know, some APIs and some .js widgets and so on. But for the, and that's because some of our customers do become a little bit more sophisticated. They're like, okay, we want to do a little bit of integration with whatever we're using. But for the most part, like we're just geared towards the average traditional business that's really trying to solve their payments problem. All of our tools and our software really kind of focus on that versus, yeah, Stripe is all about embedded payments and like hardcore developer kind of integrations. And then you have, like I say, a square. And square is really about the micro merchant, the quick order restaurant. Like you see them in your you know, your food court. But once again, you don't really see a square at your dentist and your auto mechanic. And it kind of makes you realize like, oh, that space is big, right? If you think about the biggest payments companies out there, like, and look at the market cap, right? Like PayPal, Stripe, Square, Moneris, First Data. I mean, you're talking about like tens of billions or if not more market caps. And they're all just a small portion of the market. And you realize like, oh, okay, this is a pretty big space. Now that can get dangerous on the other side because if you bite off more than you can chew, <laughs> you just realize like I'm trying to be too much to too many businesses. And that's a lesson that we really learned going like, who are we? And for us, it's like, okay, traditional SMBs, that's our bread and butter. That's what we're passionate about. And that's what we're going to focus on. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Hey, Nick, thanks so much again for all the insight today. I think that it's really relevant, especially to the listeners that we have and you know the customers that we serve. So I think they'll get a lot of value out of this. We usually like to wrap up the podcast episodes with a forward-looking, really broad question. And then, uh, so not to put you on the spot here, but if you were to look back 10 years from now, you're looking back at today, what would you hope to have seen happen within your space, within the payment space? I think that I'll focus on Canada. I think open banking is a big topic that you're seeing, you know, fintech leaders, including David and, and everyone kind of talk about, but I don't think it gets enough attention. I think that could really change the ability for smaller providers to come into space and in not just in payments, but just in, in all types of fintech and really kind of offer better services to their members. But the Canadian banks are so embedded into trying to defend their position that I think that when you really see it open up in Europe, and even even the, the US market is much more open. And I, I think ultimately, for the sake of a few big banks and controlling their, their market position, it's a disservice to an entire ecosystem of fintechs. And it's a disservice to, to small businesses, to consumers. And I really wish, and even the federal budget didn't really mention anything about it, right? So it's, I think that that's Canada is missing the boat in terms of the amount of innovation we could do. And that's really a shame.
I'm on the same page. Let's hope for a serious shift in the decade to come. I hope it doesn't take quite that long. I agree. Um, yeah, that's for sure. This has been a lot of fun, Nick. Thanks so much for hopping on. And thanks for everyone listening in. And uh, look forward to episodes to come. So until next time, this was Venturepreneur. Venturepreneur.